It was in the middle of the coronavirus quarantine when a neighbor stopped by my garage because he heard me playing music. I've been recording a song for one of our weekly online services. As he peeked his head in with curiosity, I broke from recording and explained what I was doing, which started a strange and uncomfortable conversation. <laughs> Why aren't you meeting in your church? He asked, a fellow churchgoer himself. I mean, you know there's a quarantine going on, right? I pushed back, both startled by his question and by the tone in my own voice. I don't want to get anyone killed by passing coronavirus around. He then looked me straight in the eye and began to preach to me. Reverend, you can't kill anyone. God has prepared the time and place for us all. The lecture was just getting started, and the longer it went on, the more I knew it wasn't worth getting into. While I'm used to bursting theological bubbles, I could tell this particular bubble was not ready or willing to be popped. I felt like keeping my relationship with my neighbor in good standing was more important than teaching him. So I heard him out, and when he was done, he headed back to his house. So what do we believe? Has coronavirus already set its sights on every person it needs to kill on behalf of God and quarantine is a pointless way of stopping it? Do we have no free will and therefore quarantine is all a part of God's plan to protect those he didn't destine to die in this time? Is God pulling the strings behind every decision we ever make? Did you really have a choice between Honey Nut Cheerios and Lucky Charms this morning? Or did you just choose what God had already planned for you to choose? Are we all nothing but words on a page in a grand story that God wrote which is turning page by page until the book comes to an end? Do we have free will at all? Or is it all just a grand illusion? Before we go deeper, let's first look at what reason teaches us about this conversation. Because rationally, if there's no free will, then God has designed every last atrocity that has ever happened to us, including rape, torture, murder, and a never-ending list of other sins. But if there is free will, then the sins we commit are on our hands. Furthermore, if God is love and we exist because of love, then rationally, only free will can create a scenario where true love can exist. If there is one thing all humans should be able to agree on from their own experience, it's that true love cannot be forced. It cannot be coerced. It cannot be programmed. Alexa, Siri, and Google may have a tone that says, I'm here to serve you and make you happy. Making you happy is all that matters to me. But they do not care about you at all. <laughs> you know that. Therefore, you don't take your relationship with your device seriously. Though... The day is surely coming where that will change. God does not want a bunch of Alexas, Siri's, and Googles running around the earth. Sure, a programmed robot could actually serve God more faithfully than we often do with our own free will, but that only further shows the rationality of the existence of free will. If all God cared about was filling the earth perfectly with his image, then he would have created robots. Clearly, he wanted something more than that. He wanted a relationship. He wanted love. So if we have no free will, then our love for God is not real, for it is not a choice. Likewise, if we have no free will, we must also define God's love as the sins that he has apparently predestined to happen to us. Reason calls us to defend God's character on this topic, and so defend we shall. 
Having grown up in the Wesleyan tradition, I've always believed that I have free will. I'm a free agent making free choices, even if there are factors at play pushing me in any particular direction. When you grow up with this understanding, you don't run into the kind of dilemma that some sects of the church do. You can't wake up late for work one day and think, well, I guess God wanted me to sleep in today, all a part of his grand plan for my life. This kind of thinking simply wasn't on my radar. However, uh, there was a different kind of dilemma I had to face. See, most of us who believe in free will also believe that God knows all things, that he's omniscient. And eventually I had to be honest with myself. These ideas contradict each other. If God already knows what my choices are going to be because he's omniscient, how free am I in actuality? This is a conundrum. For while both views see something completely opposite, free will versus no free will, the idea of omniscience requires that both views have one thing in common. God's book will only be written one way, and he has no need for an eraser. For something needs to be erased, that means that God doesn't have omniscience, right? He doesn't actually know all things if he had to edit his book based on our decision. We're stuck. Seems we can either have free will and no omniscience, or no free will and omniscience. We can't have both, right? Actually, I'd suggest we can. But in order to do so, we need a much bigger view of what God's omniscience is. We think that God knows all things because life is playing out the one way he knows it will go. Word for word is being read exactly as he has written it, every page turning just as planned. But I think that our book analogy is a flawed way of looking at God's omniscience. To use a different but similar analogy, I think God's omniscience is more like a library. Each book detailing the different ways in which our lives might proceed given the different decisions we could make. These decisions, of course, are impossible to count and have numerous effects not only on us, but on the people around us. In this library, you could skim through countless books to see the ways in which our decisions changed us and changed others. Uh, you could read millions of books in that library based upon your life alone. This is the way that I view God's omniscience. He knows literally everything. That which did happen and that which never came to be. Each decision having been our own. And if this perception of God feels unbelievable to you, because who could really know all that, then the question you have to ask yourself is whose view of God is greater? A God who has memorized one book, or a God who has memorized an infinite amount of books? People turn to select scriptures in the Bible in order to say that everything is predestined by God. But I just open the Bible at random and point to 99.9% .9 of the rest of it to show the opposite. <laughs> the whole thing is full of human choice after human choice after human choice. In fact, the Bible is consistently clear that many of the choices being made are against God's wishes and desires for humanity. Uh, nearly the whole Bible communicates free will, which means that we should frame any passages that seem to communicate otherwise into this larger view. 
We shouldn't let the few confusing passages rewrite the entire Bible. Now, because we obviously don't have time to address every free will passage in the Bible, let's go ahead and address some of the most poignant stories that make our case, uh, starting with a failed prophecy. At the time of this recording, there's a new worship song that came out that I really love. Uh, however, my mind gets stuck on a particular lyric in the chorus that says, you never lost a battle and you never will. Now. I understand the sentiment the song is relating, and the song is completely appropriate in the light it means to paint God. God can do all things and win any battle he engages in. Amen. <laughs> but that isolated statement makes me think of the strange story in 2 Kings 3, where kings from Israel, Judah, and Edom go to war with Moab and lose. Why is this story strange? is not because God's people lost a battle. That had happened several times before when the conditions for battle were inappropriate by God's standards. Uh, rather, it's strange they lost this battle because Elisha had just prophesied that they would win it. The stage had been set. A prophetic words Elisha had given up leading to the battle had come true. Uh, by all means, they should have won. But when the king of Moab decided to sacrifice his son to his God in front of his attackers, the Bible says that there came a great wrath against Israel. They withdrew from him and returned to their own land. What do we do with such a passage? Was God wrong? Was God not strong enough to beat this false God or the Moabite army or its king? No, no, of course not. Rather, this story is a glimpse into the incredible power of free will. It was prophesied by a mega-prophet that Moab would lose this battle. When the battle heated up, Israel decided to give up and leave. If they had used their free will to keep fighting, they would have won as prophesied because God cannot lose. But they got scared, so they gave up and lost, making a legitimate prophecy looked like a false one. They did not walk into the destiny that God had painted for them. They chose a different path. So has God lost a battle? Well, on one hand, no, because like the song says, God can't lose a battle. He is undefeatable and would have been undefeated had the battle continued on. Did God lose this battle? Uh, sort of since the free will agents who were to carry out the fullness of his prophetic word bailed on seeing the prophecy to completion. But ultimately, that loss is penned on humanity, not God. He can't lose. This is a tough story and it should be getting our attention. Had God had his way, certain things would have happened. But due to free will, God didn't have his way and it upset his very prophetic word. Our choices are very free and very powerful. When we believe this, we start to see that prophetic words can be derailed by free will more often than we thought. Uh, for example, when God turned Israel over to the nations as a punishment for their sins, he had to clarify through the prophet Zechariah that the nations made God's judgment more severe than it was supposed to be. As strange as it sounds, Israel suffered more than God had predicted they would because the surrounding nations in their free will came down harder on them than God expected them to. Of course, in his omniscience, God knew that this possibility was there, 
but it seems he expected their free will to be enacted less severely. As another example, God prophesied throughout Ezekiel 26 that Nebuchadnezzar would essentially destroy and plunder Tyre. While this attack did happen, the destruction and plunder fell quite short of what Ezekiel had prophesied. Even Ezekiel had to note this was the case three chapters later. Uh, he then prophesied that because of this, God was going to let Nebuchadnezzar plunder Egypt instead. Here we find God accommodating his prophetic words to make up for the ways in which free will derailed them from coming to their full fruition. While many would be afraid to admit it, in light of the stories that I just listed, uh, pastor and theologian Greg Boyd boldly points out that the phenomenon of failed prophecies, which is far from rare in the Old Testament, demonstrates both that God does not meticulously control the agents he uses and that the assumption that God is always certain his particular plans will be realized is misguided. This is not to suggest that God can never guarantee his plans will succeed, nor is it to even deny that God can usually guarantee his plans will succeed. And even in cases where variables are such that the all-knowing God sees that a particular plan may not succeed, scripture makes it clear that God has contingency plans in place. Humanity is predictable, but their free will is strong enough to change those predictions. At the same time, all unpredicted actions are not unknown by God, for he is omniscient. Israel may have lost a prophesied victory, but God knew that even this was a possibility when he prophesied it. In his usual evocative form, Pastor Rob Bell once raised a cylindrical object and told his audience to imagine what this 3D object would look like on a 2D plane. From a side perspective, it would look like a line. But from another perspective, it would look like a circle. And anyone who lived on that 2D plane would argue what it was based on their perspective. It's a line! No, you're crazy. It's obviously a circle. Now we on the 3D plane know that this is obviously a flashlight, a, a cylinder-shaped object that is circular from one 2D perspective, but linear from another 2D perspective. We would be right in claiming both the line and the circle perspectives to be correct, even though the people on the 2D plane would not be able to see it or believe it themselves. So is a case of those who fight over free will and predestination. One group boldly claims that the flashlight is a circle, while the other claims that it's a line, when in fact, both are right. The Bible is secure in its understanding that we have free will, as well as its understanding that God can predestine things. For example, God predestined Jeremiah to be a prophet and saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Likewise, salvation was predestined before the beginning of time, as was Jesus' involvement in it. And as we all know, the end times and resurrection and the new heavens and new earth are predestined ahead of us. God is wise enough to set in place the things he needs to happen. Uh, likewise, he is wise enough to chart new courses to navigate around our free will when it clashes with his. For example, uh, next time you read a gospel, pay attention to how many times Jesus has to leave a city 
because someone who was told to stay quiet about his miraculous powers went and blabbed it to everyone else, making it impossible for Jesus to stick around because of all the attention that was drawn to him. Was it God in flesh's plan to have to leave those cities prematurely? I'd say no. But sometimes, Jesus would run into hiccups in ministry, and things wouldn't go down exactly as he would have liked. Like when he went to his hometown, could only heal a few sick people. Clearly, if God had his way, he would have found more to heal. Likewise, both Paul and Peter tell us that if God truly had his way, everyone would be saved. So the idea that God predestined everyone to either heaven or hell before time began is a misunderstanding of his character, because God only wants people to go to heaven. In fact, Peter said that God has been waiting to usher in the end times because he wants more people to be saved. In other words, there are still some out there who have yet to use their free will to give their lives over to God, and so he's holding off on bringing about the final judgment so that they can still have time to come to him. They may be assigned to hell at the moment, but God's still holding out the hope that their free will decision will change. And if they'll turn to Jesus, then they too will join the church in Paul's exhortation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Recognize that Paul keeps referring to an us in this passage as he writes to the church at Ephesus about predestiny. Who is the us? It's the church universal, all Christians. In other words, he's not saying we individuals are the select few that were predestined to receive the blessings of Christ. Rather, he's saying we as Christians are the select few that were predestined to receive the blessings of Christ. In other words, if you join Christianity, if you join the church, you join the promises of predestination. The church is the predestined one, and all are welcome to join her. You don't need to get rid of predestination in order to have free will. Your framework doesn't have to crumble with the existence of both. You can have both the line and the circle that make the cylinder. We just need to understand what predestination means in its context. We also have to recognize that God has his own will that he can act, enact upon us and, and that his will being carried out is often what we would refer to as predestiny. But even if we can start to wrap our minds around this understanding of predestination, we still have to face another Bible buzzword of the free will front. Election. After all, the Bible seems to talk about certain people being elected to salvation, which sounds like predestination to a lot of people. But this word isn't too hard to comprehend if you just look at it through the lens of the Old Testament. For Israel was God's chosen elect community. He elected them to be his nation. In the same way that we are all imagers of God because we are all born human, 
All Israelites were elect ones because they were born in Israelite. Out of all the nations in the world, they were elected slash chosen to, to be God's nation by none other than God himself. But did every last Israelite throughout history live out the election that was upon them? <laughs> Most certainly not. Their chief sin was to turn away from the one true God and worship the false gods over and over again. This was a break in their oath of loyalty to God. You can't just reject God and go burn your children alive to Molech and still expect to receive the promises of the one true God simply because you had the DNA of an Israelite running through your veins. That is what we call apostasy. Turning away from God severs the contract, regardless of whether you carried the title elect or not, regardless as to if you are an Israelite or not. So, yes, election is a specific call of God upon a person's life. Israel was once the elect. Now the church is the elect. But just because someone is elect does not mean that their free will has been overrun and that they are once saved, always saved, as has been often stated. For so long as a human lives and breathes, they will always have a chance out of their free will to apostatize and turn their back on God. They will always have a chance to run to another god, and they will always have the free will to carry out such an action. And if they do so, they will have left the election that was placed upon their lives and the elect community to which they were a part of. If you've been in the church long enough, you've surely seen this happen. Friends who followed faithfully for decades, suddenly gone in a moment. My soul is troubled when I think of some of my best friends who once were a part of the elect and have since apostatized and, and turned away from that which they were predestined to. I, I hope and pray for their return. See, election does not promise things will go the way God hoped because free will can still get in the way. God elected Israel to be his people. And they failed him time and time again. God elected King Saul to office of, of, of a king. And then God ended up regretting it. Jesus told us there was a possibility that the elect might be led astray by false Christs and false prophets. Election does not promise things will go the way God hoped because free will can still get in the way. God elected Israel to be his people and they failed time and time again. God elected King Saul to office and the Bible says that God ended up regretting that decision. Jesus told us there was a possibility that the elect might be led astray by false Christs and false prophets. So clearly, to be elect is not to be eternally secure. For many fallen Israelites and Christians match the biblical term elect, but have since turned away from their election because they turned away from God. Election is a powerful word because it reminds us that only God can save us. Even though you have free will, you don't choose salvation. The one who brings about salvation chooses to offer it to you. He elects you. You cannot save yourself. All salvation comes from God. So when we choose to receive salvation slash election slash predestination, 
We are to understand that God has chosen us and given us the things that we otherwise could not have. Few statements upset me more than the phrase, everything happens for a reason. (laughs) Especially because I always hear people use this statement in reference to God after they've been persecuted in a horrible way by Satan. Whenever I hear it, I respond, yeah, everything does happen for a reason. And that reason is not God. God does not want credit for all the horrible things that happen to you. We already know where such horrible things belong. It's with the enemy that seeks to kill and destroy. Not with Jesus who came to give life abundantly. The last thing God wants is for you to look at something the enemy did and attribute it to him, creating a demented view of God's love in the process. Again, we could say that all things happen for a reason, but... We cannot say that all those reasons are are because of God. This kind of false thinking is deep inside of a lot of people, uh, even healthy Christians who have since recovered from the horrible things that were committed against them. I've heard many people claim that God allowed bad things to happen to them so that they might be able to help others later on. And while I'm so glad that they're able to help others later on, I think this is a misunderstanding. Paul tells us that For those who love God, all things work together for their good. So we should understand that even our horrible stories of oppression and persecution, that those things can be redeemed by God to do good in the end. His redemption of a bad situation doesn't mean that the bad situation was his doing. Rather, we can remain secure in the fact that God could redeem otherwise unredeemable moments and teach us to forgive people for the otherwise unforgivable things that they do to us. Now with everything we've talked about in mind, let's return to my conversation with my neighbor. If someone died because I passed coronavirus along to them, was that all a part of God's plan? My guess is that my neighbor would quote two particular passages in his defense. One is Job 14.5, which says, Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. The other passage is Psalm 139.16, which says, In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. These passages are certainly a strong defense, but they both come from poetry. Do these passages truly mean to communicate that our death day has been predetermined by God? Or does it mean that the totality of our lives are in his hands? To that question, I think the answer can vary. After all, there are plenty of stories in the Bible where God determines that people have reached their last day. 1 Kings 22, for instance, the prophet Micaiah was told in a vision that the evil king Ahab would die through a plan that God had set in place with other heavenly beings. That plan led Ahab into a battle that he did not return from when a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. The biblical irony being that the arrow was not so random. Ahab's death had been predetermined by God, though we might wonder if he would have predetermined it if he had been a good king. Likewise, when an audience claimed Herod to be a god in Acts, an angel struck him down. So by all means, God, and only God I might add, can choose to end someone's life. 
These are only two examples of a long list. But back to our book analogy. Are we to believe that everyone gets to write their own journey with their own decisions so long as it all ends by a predetermined last page? I don't feel the Bible communicates that. And King Hezekiah is a perfect example to make my point. When God sent a prophet to him and told him he was about to die, Hezekiah wept and prayed to God for more time. God granted him 15 more years. That's quite a few books to add to his library that were not there before. Our other problem with treating death as a predetermined end time is once again a moral issue. People die in all kinds of horrific ways, and if we attribute all of those deaths to God, he again gets painted as a monster. Under this mindset, every suicide and car crash and all of the effects such morbid scenarios have on the people around them are attributed to God. The person who died from texting and driving did so because their time was up. The person who died from decades of bad health only had bad health in the first place so that they could reach their end date on time. But again, we know such things to be the works of the enemy, for he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Some might push back and say, well, they could have died some other way had they been doing something else in that moment. But that only proves you believe in free will. <laughs> and it makes your thinking look a lot like the 2002 science fiction movie, The Time Machine, in which... No matter what a man did to go back in time and save the love of his life, she always managed to die on the same day. Is that really the same way we think of God and his death dates for us all? I've heard before that bad theology kills, but it took coronavirus for me to finally understand that. Claiming that my negligence of a worldwide pandemic has no effect on others because God is ultimately in charge of who lives and who dies ignores a dense biblical worldview of free will and all of the ways in which it and God intersect. We need a richer understanding of omniscience. We need a wider view of predestination and election. We need a fuller understanding of free will. And when we finally get all of that, we realize that the decisions that we make every second of every day as imagers on God's planet are much more important and costly than we ever thought possible. You are not a robot. You were created with the authority to rule over this planet on God's behalf. And the script as to how you do so has not been written in full, making it all the more important that you write a good one with the authority you were given. One day this analogical library of ours will burn down and only one book will be left that tells the accurate story of how we all used our free will. Let's ensure that our part in the story represents God's image, and that even our low points end up being redeemed in the end.